It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her, and he asked the men of the place, where is the colt prostitute who was at Enam on the road, at the roadside? And they said, no colt prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no colt prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, the brother came out. And, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sometimes you get to that last, this is the word of the Lord, and you kind of want to answer, thanks be to God? Uh, yeah, I guess. Um, how many of us have heard a sermon on Genesis chapter 38? 
A lot, of, a lot of experience on this one, huh? Unless you've sat in a church that went through a series, chapter by chapter, through Genesis, I highly doubt you've ever heard a sermon on Genesis chapter 38. Yet, how many of us have started a Bible reading plan and read Genesis chapter 38 and got to it and thought, what in the world is happening here? You see, the Bible is different than what we like to think it is. The, the world thinks that the Bible is like a collection of fairy tales, kind of like Aesop's fables. And as you read each fairy tale, you, each one has like a moral at the end. You know, the moral of this story is this. The moral of this story is this. The moral of David fighting the giant is that you can fight the giants in your life. The moral of, of Noah and his ark is that you need to be righteous no matter what other people think of you. But try finding a moral for Genesis 38 I, get, I guess if you were to read it that way, the moral might be, when it's sheep shearing season and you're out with the dudes and you're drinking a little bit too much, check and make sure that your prostitute isn't your, your daughter-in-law. I don't think that's right, though. When we get to passages like this, we have to remember that the Bible is not a collection of cute fairy tales with morals at the end. But the Bible is real history about real people that's telling a real story about a God who has come to seek the lost and the broken and the destitute. The Bible has one moral behind all of the morals in there, and it's this, that your morality will not save you, that your morality is not enough. And when we get to passages like this, we are reminded of that. We don't need to simply be good people. Because if you take a deep look within yourself, you will face the fact that you are deeply flawed. You are deeply flawed. And in your heart of hearts, you are actually no better than the people that you find most despicable. In your heart of hearts, you are actually no better than the people that you find most despicable. Only when you realize this, Will you finally be prepared to truly appreciate the gospel? And, the, and this is the gospel, that Jesus didn't come to save us from our middle-class morality, this middle-class morality where we feel like we're making it, we're doing enough, we might not be the top, but we're definitely not the bottom. We've got a middle-class morality, but that's not who Jesus came to save. Jesus came to save the morally bankrupt, the ones who have nothing left to contribute, and that is us, church. It's everyone in here, no matter where you're at. You're bankrupt and you don't even know it yet. Before we start dissecting this passage, let me add a bit of context for those of you who may not have been here with us last week. Last week, we, re we did Genesis chapter 37. We've been making our way through the Genesis narrative, and we're in the final stretch. We started Genesis chapter 37 last week, and I said, hey, this is the last story. It's only going to take five or six more weeks. And so we started the Joseph narrative last week, and we read about Joseph's brothers, Judah being one of them, selling him into slavery. And then he is given over at the end of Genesis 37. It says, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And so it ended on a bit of a, of a cliffhanger. You're thinking, well, let's pick up this story with Potiphar. And the story does continue with Potiphar, but it skips a chapter. Genesis 39 is all about Joseph and Potiphar's house. But the author of Genesis decided to put Genesis 38 right here in the middle of the Joseph narrative. 
We take a break from this Joseph story. We have a side story that we need to investigate before we continue on. Why on earth would the author put it here? The story obviously goes with Joseph. There's at least three reasons, and there's probably more as we go on. One, this is a really powerful story. When you get to the heart of what's happening here, what's happening is powerful. We have a lot to learn from this story. But secondly, he put this passage here because Judah is now the heir apparent. And one of the major things that's happening throughout the entire book of Genesis is that it's tracing this lineage from the promised child that God told Eve in the garden that one of your children will one day crush the head of the serpent. And so what we've been doing since then is we've been tracing the seed of Eve to that promised Savior who we know to be Jesus. But right now, it's gone from Isaac to Jacob, and now Judah is the heir apparent, and here's why. Because his oldest brother, Reuben, disqualified himself by um, sleeping with his, um, his father's concubine, so his dad heard about it, and he was upset. We learned about that a couple chapters ago. Then, before that, Simeon and Levi, numbers, brothers two and three, they went on a murderous rampage because, in vengeance for their sister Dinah, and then... Jacob said, okay, forget all of you guys. I'm going to skip over to my son, Joseph. But Joseph is apparently dead. His brothers came back with a coat that's been dripped, dipped in blood. So now Judah, you're the heir apparent. And we get a story about Judah and what happens to him. Lastly, the passage that we have today is, um, is in direct contact with Genesis 39. And in Genesis 39, we learn about Joseph and Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife tries to seduce uh, Joseph. And if that was the only story that we had in this narrative, we might think that the Bible is a collection of so stories about how about the evils of women who are trying to seduce men. But the author intentionally put Genesis 38, where we see other types of sexual evil happening, next to Genesis 39, so we cannot make that mistake. We cannot always blame the woman in this passage. Genesis 39 is the story of a man holding strong in the face of sexual temptation. Genesis 38, though, it shows us the redemption of people who are sexually broken. You see, the Bible is not just a book for the sexually chaste and for those who have kept themselves pure, but it's a book for the broken. And in fact, the promised seed of the woman comes through this broken relationship, as you will see. And so that gives us a context of why this passage might be here, it's very well placed, come to think of it. So let's dive into it. Verse one, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now this story is happening shortly after Joseph was sold into slavery. It's while Joseph has, is out in Egypt, and so that is one reason why it is placed here. And the Dulamite is a Canaanite. If you remember, the Canaanites were the people that inhabited the land that sometimes the people of Israel did not love all that much. If you remember carefully, Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother, said, Esau has made my life terrible because he has married these Canaanite women. And so here Judah is back out in the Canaanites following in his uncle Esau's footsteps. Verse two, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He went into her, he, he took her and he went into her. This woman doesn't even get a name in the passage, but here we learn a lot about Judah's attitude toward women. He sees her and he goes into her. Now I don't know exactly what that means. It doesn't say anything about wedding her. 
But it says that Judah is a man with a sexual appetite. He doesn't deny himself. He's kind. He's the kind that does what he wants and excuses it later. But evidently, Judah and this woman stay together long enough to have three children. And then after the third children, child, it says that she died. And so his three children are named Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And they're not very good people for the most part, from what we can tell. So verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Do you know how evil you have to be for the Lord to put you to death? I mean, have you guys been reading the same book as me? There have been some pretty evil people who have lived to tell the tale. And here we have Ur. He must have been a pretty bad dude because the Lord put him to death. So, in those days, this puts Tamar in a really vulnerable situation because her husband is now dead and she doesn't have any children. Her social safety net is gone. In those days, what would happen when this happened is you couldn't just go out and get a job. You couldn't just go protect yourself. You couldn't just go provide for yourself. They had to, you had to be remarried and usually you weren't someone that was very uh, desirable to people who haven't been married before. So what would happen is they had this thing called a leveret law. And with the Leveret Law, it said, if, if your husband dies, then his brother has to marry you. And after his brother takes you, the first child that you have with his brother actually belongs to your first husband. And it, that child takes your first husband's name and takes your first child's inheritance. And it's a way to keep that first husband, his memory alive and his legacy alive. And so that is exactly what happens here is we see... Tamar is given in Leveret Law to Onan. And uh, this is like a, a, a way of ancient welfare. This is a way that widows were cared for because God truly cares for widows. And this is what Tamar does. She marries Onan, Ur's little brother, but Onan is selfish, verse 9. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Odin willingly had sex with Tamar, but is unwilling to allow her to conceive a child. Onan views Tamar as an object for his own, his own gratification and satisfaction, but refuses to live up to his responsibilities of giving her a child. And this child would secure Tamar's place in society. It would mean that she has a, a person to take care of her and a land right through her. He wants the pleasure of sex without the responsibility that comes along with it. And so verse 10, it says this, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God put him to death also. This teaches us that God cares dearly for the vulnerable. Tamar was vulnerable. And now, I've seen this text used as a proof text of the evils of birth control. We cannot read it that way. It's not simply that there was a birth control method happening here, but it's that Onan was refusing to give the widow justice. She was in a vulnerable situation, and he refused to allow her to be taken care of. And so what he did was wicked. There are dozens of passages about the importance and the religious significance of taking care of widows. God cares deeply about the vulnerable. 
So poor Tamar. She's done everything right. I want you to look at Tamar. She hasn't done anything wrong. She did the right thing. She married into a good family. She married a firstborn son. That protects her doubly, because this guy had two younger brothers. So if something were to happen to Ur, her her first son, her first husband, he has two brothers that could fulfill the Leveret law with her. But yet she is in this ultimately vulnerable place. And Judah, when he finds out that, that Onan is now dead, he refuses to marry his last son with Tamar. Verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in his father's house, in her father's house. So it's basically saying here, Judah goes to Tamar and says, look, wait until Shelah grows up, then I'll give you, then, then I'll give him to you. But until then, go to your parents' house, don't call us, we'll call you. Is basically what he's saying. You, you go hide over there. But in his heart of hearts, the narrator tells us that Judah had no intention of giving Sheila to Tamar because he feared that it was Tamar's fault that his two sons had been killed. He was looking at this situation saying, something must be wrong with this woman. She married two of my sons and they're gone. There's no way I'm giving her my final son. Judah is blaming Tamar for his son's death. But why did his sons die? Because they were bad people. Because they did not care about the vulnerable. Because they were evil. You see, he's blaming Tamar for these things that have more to do with his own parenting than it has to do with Tamar. Tamar's not done anything. But you know, you, God does things with, with children, but in general, if you have three sons that grow up to be jerks, you have to point the finger a little bit back at yourself, okay? And so here we have Judah, and he's refusing to point the finger back at himself. And after a while, when it becomes re- readily apparent that Judah has no intention of calling Tamar, she hears a rumor that Judah's on his way to shear his sheep. Now, she knows what shearing the sheep season's like. Shearing the sheep season's just a bunch of the dudes, There's usually a lot of alcohol, and they go away, and they shear all the sheep, and then they come back. And so what she does is she decides to get justice for herself. So she she quickly, she acts. She hears that Judah's on his way. She goes. She takes off her widow's clothes. She puts on the clothing of a prostitute. And she goes and sits where she knows Judah will be walking. And when he walks by, he propositions her for payment and he, and he agrees. He, he's, he's down for it. For payment, she requires a goat. Judah's like, oh, I left my goat at home. Uh, don't have one on me right now. Uh, how about I give you my signet and my staff and my cord? And so your, your signet and your staff and your cord, these are identifiable objects. The signet is usually like a little cylindrical thing that has like your, your letter on it or whatever that signifies that it belongs to you. And then your, your staff tends to be also something that's heavily identified with a person. And so basically what Tamar's asking for until she can receive the goat is his wallet. Like, hey, yeah, you got to leave your wallet with me and uh, leave your ID here. You can pick it up tomorrow if you're not ready. Um, and they do the deed. They go home. And Judah goes to try to find her, and he cannot find her. And so he's like, well, you know, I did, all, I did my part. Uh, I guess we're even. So he gets to keep the goat. Three months later, 
someone comes to Judah and says, hey, Judah, your daughter-in-law, she's pregnant. And Judah says, I knew it. She's no good. She's immoral. This is why my sons die. Go get her and burn her. Now, this is a punishment that does not match the crime. Burning was reserved for the worst of crimes. Do you see the double standard here? That Judah can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whoever he wants. But Tamar, he gets word that she's been sexually immoral just once, and he says, I knew it. Get her and burn her. And so as she's being dragged away, you can just imagine the scene. She's being dragged away, and she has to plead. No, bring me to Judah. I need to talk to him first. I need to talk to him. Do not set me on fire yet. I need to talk to Judah. And when they do, they eventually get her to Judah. She holds up his signet. She holds up his staff. And she says, do you remember these? You recognize this? Call Maury. The DNA test is back. It's yours. The word for identify here, this is the same word that was previously used when Judah and his brothers brought back Joseph's coat dipped in blood. They held it up and said, do you recognize this? It's the same word that Joseph will use later in the story when he reveals himself to his brothers and he says, do you not recognize me? It's a word that's meant to turn our attention very quickly. At that moment, Judah finally he not only recognizes his signet, he recognizes himself. He recognizes his own heart. He identifies what's happening. And here's what he says. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son, Sheila. He said, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. He finally has perspective. All these years, he's been blaming Tamar. All these years, he's been seeing his son's death as a result of this woman, that woman. He finally says, it's me. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. She's more righteous than I am. You see, they both were sexual sinners in this situation. In no way is what Judah's saying that Tamar did right. Okay, this is a moral gray area of what's happening here. Tamar said, I need justice. I'm going to go get justice on my own. Very morally gray, what she did. Okay, this is, not, this is not righteousness. I wouldn't say this is an exemplar. This is not people to uh, follow an imitation, okay? No one can say, I'm going to go be like Tamar. Please don't, okay? But what he's saying is that she's more righteous than I am. You see, we're both sexual sinners, but I was withholding justice from a widow while she was being pure, and she did what she had to do to secure her place in society. What, Ju what Judah had done was worse. Tamar brilliantly, brilliantly uses the double standard in the society against Judah. Judah was allowed to, to have sex whenever he wanted, but Tamar she can't. The second that he finds out Tamar has had sex outside of marriage, it's time to burn the witch. Friends, it's easy to judge other people without taking a deep look inside. Is it not? 
even quick little judgment calls that we make, the way we see people, the things that we think about people by the way that they're dressed, what they say, or what we see them doing on TV or whatever it might be, it's easy to judge people without taking a deep look inside. But the message of the Bible tells us that we're to hold ourselves to the same, if not a higher standard than we hold other people. This is why Jesus told us and he taught that you have to get the speck, that you have to get the log out of your own eye before you can get the speck out of your neighbor's eye. You have to look deeply at yourself. And so when Tamar comes in, she says, hey, log face, the baby's yours. I can think of many times when I've been that log face. For example, I kid you not, I came up with this illustration before, before I knew you were going to be here. When Bland and Teresa were pastoring at Brookline, this is weird uh, now, I was a log face many times and thought, when I'm lead pastor, I would do things like this. And then you get in the situation, and Megan and I talk about it all the time, we're like, this is harder than it looked. You make decisions. It's like parenting. When, when you're a parent, you make all kinds of decisions that you say you never would have. Before I was a parent, I would judge parents all the time. You know, I would look at them and judge them. And those of you who don't have kids, you're doing this, and that's okay. Because there's just no way you can know. You can't know without knowing. You don't know what you don't know. And then you have kids, and you're like these little terrorists. They're driving me nuts. <laughs> and with your first child, you're like, we do not negotiate with terrorists. And then by your third, you're like, oh, you'd like a bomb? Okay, here you go, take it. You know, just stop crying, please. We have to take a deep look at our own hearts, and we have to be more critical of ourselves than we are other people. We always own our side of things before we start pointing the finger to the other's side of things. It's like that, um, that C.S. Lewis quote that we used in our most recent tea advertisement. To be a Christian is to forgive the unforgivable because God has forgiven the unforgivable in you. Our society is full of people who like to throw rocks. We like to call other people evil. We live in a society with very little insight. And you know what? We could all use a little bit more insight. We could all use a little bit more self-perspective, a little bit more looking deep inside. Before you judge someone, take a deep look inside, and what you'll see is that you're actually a quite selfish person yourself, that you have made many self-centered decisions, and you might act with a bit more compassion toward those who are around you, to those you see as despicable when you look and see that the seeds for the same things that they're doing live within you. The seeds for the same type of desire for power, the same type of desire for satisfaction, for comfort, for security, they live within you. And given the right nurturing and without being redirected to your true north, which is Christ, you could end up in the same place. This is a breakthrough moment for Judah. In fact, the child that he has later, uh, Perez, uh, which is the one that carries the, the line, Perez means breakthrough. 
And this is a breakthrough moment for Tamar. It's a, a breakthrough moment for Judah. And this is the moment when we see Judah's character develop. Because what we actually see later in the story, um, and it wouldn't make sense because Judah's the one who had the bright idea to sell Joseph into slavery in Genesis chapter 37. He says, hey guys, I have an idea. Let's sell him to the slave owners and, and get rid of him that way. Later in the story, when they come asking Joseph for help, Joseph says, you need to go back and get your dad and leave your brother Benjamin here with me. And this feels like a death penalty to the, to the sons. They're like, no way we're leaving Je- Benjamin here because he might kill him. What, we're not going to be here to protect him. And so what did Judah do? He said, I volunteer as tribute. And he said, you can take me. Don't take Benjamin. Bring me. Just take me. And so how did this guy go from saying, hey, I have a bright idea. Let's sell his our brother into slavery, to being this type of guy who says, I volunteer to go in the place of my brother, even though it might mean death. Well, you see it right here. It turned him from a selfish person to a selfless person. He, he, we don't read anything else about Judah sinning in this kind of way. It changes his character. He goes from punishing Tamar for his son's sins, which reflect more on him than it does her, to this guy who's willing to sacrifice himself to save his brother. And that's the moment when he says, take me, don't take Benjamin. That's the moment where Joseph looks and he says, these people are different. These aren't the same brothers that sold me. And he says, don't you recognize who I am? You see, Judah's character development is important for us to see in this story. He changed, and Joseph can notice it, and we can notice it, and when you look out to one another, you should be able to notice it in the same kind of way, and we should speak it to one another. You've changed. I see you becoming less selfish. I see you gaining self-perspective. I see you criticizing yourself more than you criticize others. That is a surefire indication of spiritual growth, that you criticize yourself more than you criticize others. Not that you hate yourself, Because that is not what this message is about. This message gives hope to the broken. It says Tamar, she's a a loved child of God here. She's in the the genealogy of Jesus. When you get to Matthew, you read the the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And there are five women in the genealogy of Jesus. You have Tamar. You have Rahab. You have Ruth. You have Bathsheba. And you have Mary. What do we know about each one of these women? Tamar, very uh, sexually uh, questionable activity that's going on here. Rahab, she's just known as being a prostitute. Bathsheba, this is the one that that David lost his morality with. You, You have Ruth. Okay, now Ruth, there's a debate here, but it's at least questionable what she was doing in that bed with Boaz that night, okay, when she laid at his feet. And then you have Mary, who is pregnant, while being unwed. Controversial. It wasn't by sexual immorality, but it's still controversial. These women paved the way for Jesus, and they show us that Jesus loves the broken. All of these women, other than Mary, are outside of Israel. They're all Gentiles. They show Jesus' heart for those who are outsiders, for those who are outcasts, for those who are Gentiles and who are far from God. God loves to work his grace with whispers of scandal. God loves to work his grace with whispers of scandal. 
you can experience the same type of grace that Judah did. All you have to do is stop looking at other people, stop pointing the finger, and start looking at yourself. Stop thinking, I wish this person was here to hear this sermon, and start looking within. Look at the selfishness. Look at the meanness that lives within you. And know this. God loved you despite all of that. That Jesus came to bear the weight of all the evil that you see within yourself. It's gone. He washes you clean. He makes you into a new person. He was resurrected, and through his resurrection, we have life with him. We look to Christ. When we see the evils within ourselves, every time we take one look in, we take 10 looks to the cross. We take 10 looks to who Jesus is and be reminded, that's not who I am anymore. I belong to Jesus. He has made me clean. I am righteous. I belong to him. Friends, no matter who you are, Jesus would love to make you clean today. If you are broken, feeling downtrodden, thinking, how could Jesus ever love someone like me? Look at the family tree of Jesus and know that he is not ashamed of you. That he has these pictures of these sexually broken people on his wall, in his family tree, and he is not ashamed of your picture either. He is not ashamed to be associated with you. Maybe you're one of the ones who has his life or her life all together and likes to point the finger a little bit more than what you should. And Jesus is giving you an opportunity to examine your own heart and to see that he doesn't just save morally bankrupt people, but the the seeds for the same type of immorality live within you and that he only saves the morally bankrupt, not the morally middle class. Friends, you'll never be ready to receive his grace until you've been humbled. So confess your self-righteousness to God. The invitation is open. And each week he gives us an opportunity to respond to him and to receive his grace anew, to be reminded that he loves us this much through a communion meal. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he tore it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And so each week as we take a communion meal, we're being reminded in a physical, kind of tangible way. You hear the words of the gospel through the sermon, through the scripture, but then you actually get to experience the gospel through your, your touch and your smell and your, and your taste. You get to be reminded in a physical kind of way of Christ's sacrifice for you. And so if you are a believer here today, if you claim union with God through Jesus Christ, we invite you to this table. Search your heart, repent of your sins, but receive his grace anew. So church, let us stand as we prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord. Father, we pray that as we prepare our hearts to receive this, that you'll help us to look inside, to look and see that we are just as unrighteous as those we like to point the finger at. That God, you, but God, you have made a way for us to know you. And so, Father, I pray over this time of self-reflection, I pray that you give us grace, that you remind us of your gospel, and that you point our hearts and our eyes heavenward and give us assurance of what Christ has done for us, that his death and, and resurrection is enough for me, that my sins are gone 
that they belong to him, and that through what he has done, I am made clean. So God, I pray for anyone here that you would make them clean, that they would be made clean. Whoever needs to hear that, you are clean. In Christ, you are clean. Hear it. You are cleansed and washed. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.